Welcome to the Expat Empire Podcast, the podcast where you can hear from expats around the world and learn how you can join them. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for the fourth episode of the Expat Empire Podcast. Today, we will be hearing from Brant Connors. He was born in the United States, got his first taste of living in Indonesia in university, and then decided to build a career in Bali over the last 18 years. We discuss many topics, including how to develop an entrepreneurial mindset abroad by helping people to solve their problems, how to acquire a work visa, and how to avoid common pitfalls when setting up a company in Indonesia. Without further ado, let's start the conversation. Hi, Brant. Welcome to the show. Tell me a little bit about your background, where you're originally from, where around the world you've worked so far, and where you currently live and work. Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm American. I grew up in a small town kind of outside of Seattle, but in the West Coast, uh, Washington State. I'm currently living and working in Bali, Indonesia, and I've been here for about 18 years, I guess. Really, I've been here since I graduated from the University of Washington. So at the end of my university, I came out here and I've kind of been out here ever since. Uh, for the past 15 years or so, I've been working on the, the island of Bali here in the fields of job training and social welfare projects, uh, mainly for workers in the maritime industry. Uh, most recently, I opened a medical center specifically serving Indonesian seafarers, and that's pretty much taken up the bulk of my time over the past four or five years. What exactly got your interest in working abroad uh, originally? How did you first think about that as a potential opportunity, especially Indonesia in particular? So I, my, my background from my, you know, when I was a young kid is my mom taught us to travel, me and my brother. So she always took us somewhere. We were always going on trips, just kind of, you know, getting that travel bug in us. Uh, so I was traveling from a young age. When I was in high school, I lived in Japan for a year in Hamamatsu, Japan. Uh, as an exchange student, went to high school there. I uh, went to University of Washington, where I actually started in business, but ended up uh, finishing in English and anthropology. Hmm. And by the end of my, well, almost the end of my university career, I hadn't done, a, you know, a study abroad program from there, from my university days. So I thought, man, I really want to go abroad before I'm done, before I you know, get into the working world and all that. So I just stumbled into the, the, the study abroad office there at University of Washington, just started looking through the catalogs of programs that had to do with anthropology. Uh, I saw one that was kind of interesting in Thailand. There was one somewhere, I think, in East Africa, and then one in Indonesia. And I just said, yeah, let's do this one. I didn't really know much about Indonesia, so I signed up and uh, came to Indonesia. That was 1999. So I did like five and a half, almost six months in a small town called, it's not so small, but smaller town called Malang in East Java. It's the island next to Bali. And you know, went to university there, did this anthropology program. You know, it was really good. It was really interesting. I traveled around a bit, went back um, at the end of that year, graduated from the University of Washington and thought, hmm, I think I'm going to go back there. So I worked for a little little while in, in Seattle and then came back to Indonesia just to travel around some more because there was a lot more places I wanted to see. And that was the start or the middle of 2000. And I've been here ever since. Wow. So you essentially went back to see more of the country and you just decided to stay? Yeah, that's really what happened. I went back. Um, I wanted to travel. There's, I mean, Indonesia, it's like a, you know, it's like its own mini continent, really. There's so many islands and they all have different cultures and different 
languages even, different foods, different things. So it's, it was just a really fascinating place for me to travel at that time. Uh, I'd just been here, so I'd picked up enough of the language that I could travel. And so I thought, right, I'll save up some money. It was super cheap at the time. You know, I could travel around for six months. It didn't cost me hardly anything. And then just one thing led to another. I got you know, offered to be a guest lecturer at a university. And then another university gave me a kind of six-month gig teaching a political economy course. You know, just things fell into place that could make me stay here longer. I was writing some travel articles for magazines and you know, newspapers and stuff, just kind of just getting lost a little bit, you know, kind of young, not young, but younger guy in my early 20s, you know, living abroad, kind of exotic place, just got lost. And one thing led to another. Opportunities came up and I just said, yeah, I can try that. Let's do that. And That's amazing. Yeah. How did how did you actually build that initial you know, community, that initial group of folks that you were hanging out with as you moved there more permanently? So, well, when I, when I came back the, the first time, after the university, I went back to States, graduated. When I came back, uh, I ended up having a girlfriend there in Malang. So I kind of immediately kind of became familiar with her network and her group of friends. Uh, but living in Malang in that town at that time, you know, it was a, s- a smaller town. It wasn't a I don't know, it wasn't an international town. There was not really that many expats. So all my friends were, were local people, you know, traveling, just meeting local people and just just networking with them, really, just trying to find out about the culture, find, trying to find out about, you know, the places uh, and then developing through that, obviously developing my, my language skills, um, just being able to speak Indonesian good enough to, to get around, to you know, travel and just do what you need to do to live. How did you initially start out learning Indonesian and being able to communicate? Was it through courses or was it more just on the go, taking a book with you and, you know, practicing with people around town? I was lucky in the sense that when I came for that, um, you know, first anthropology program, it was tied in with the university. So it was a kind of 10 week intensive language component to it. So I'd study the language with a couple of teachers for a couple hours a day, you know, Monday through Friday. So over those 10 weeks, I developed enough of, an, of the enough of the language skills as a as a base that I could then travel on my own and develop outside of the classroom. So that's really the only the only study that I've ever done of the of the language. Other than that, you know, meeting people, you know, like I said, having a, a an Indonesian girlfriend. You know what they say: the the, the quickest way to, to learn a new language is to kiss a mouth that speaks that language. <laughs> uh, Definitely. And then also. Like I said, well, I, living now is a little bit different. See, so I'm in in the island of Bali, which is a more of a tourist kind of focused island. So it's easier to get by in English. So if I started here, I imagine my my Indonesian wouldn't as be wouldn't be as good as it is. But starting there, man, if you wanted to eat at the local, you know, food stall, if you wanted to get on the bus, you had to you had to learn how to speak Indonesian or Javanese, even for that matter, the the more regional kind of language they have, but. But my, my thing with languages, too, is I've always been pretty good with languages. It's, you know, my one of my skill areas, I guess, is, is linguistics. Uh, and I picked up Japanese pretty quick when I lived there when I was in high school. So I've been OK with languages. And Indonesian language overall is not particularly difficult. So I think it's it's not a hard language to, to learn. And once you get the basics, um, you know, it's just adding adding vocabulary, you know, the normal stuff. The more people you talk to, the more diverse things you, you learn to talk about. And it, it comes pretty quick. 
How long do, would you say that it took you until you got to the point where you're comfortable on a daily basis, just getting around town, ordering, doing the things that you needed to do, maybe outside of going to the government office? Uh, I think even by the end of that first kind of five or six month period where I was here for that program, I was I was at that level. And then when I came back, probably another six months and I was, you know, good to go, just do pretty much anything, even interact with kind of government people. And then just after a few more years, you know, it's all right. It's, it's like I said, it's not a real difficult language. I mean, even, even now, it's all I speak in the office kind of all day, every day. Um, I do contracts, stuff for the office. So my Indonesian level is, you know, it's about as good as it'll get. I mean, it's, it's, it's where it needs to be for sure for all the work I'm doing. So when you first went back to Indonesia to travel around and ultimately decide to live there, how did you manage that through uh, the visas that you had? Did you come originally on a tourist visa and then have to get that changed as you found work there? How did you manage that process? So when I was here the first time, obviously, I was a student, so I was on the student visa. When I came back, uh, I was on a tourist visa because I, I was a tourist, and then I got onto what's called a cultural social visa, and that's basically where you're sponsored by uh, somebody living there because you want to stay for a period longer than 30 days. So at that time, you know, I was sponsored by uh, somebody that was, you know, staying, I was staying with actually in, in Malang, in East Java. Uh, and under that type of visa, the social cultural visa, you can stay, you have to go outside the country to one of the Indonesian embassies and get the visa. You know, there's a sponsor letter and all that kind of stuff. But when you come back into the country, you can stay for a period of up to a maximum of six months. Uh, but you can't work, so you're just here as a kind of, you know, observer. You're, you know, observing the culture. You're traveling or whatever. Uh, and I didn't really work at that time. Uh, but if you go out of the country, then it's gone. So even if you come and you stay for like one month and you leave, then the entire visa is done. And if you want to get another one, you have to start all over again. Uh, but I stayed here, so I stayed for that. Well, most of that six-month period, and then the university that offered me this uh, kind of lecture position. They arranged kind of the next visa that I had, and let's see, I think when that one's finished, I went back out, had to go back out again, came in again as a tourist, and then when we set up our first company, I think it's around 2001, 2002, I moved from, from Java back to, or over to, to, to Bali, the island here, and when we set up the first company, that's when I got my first uh, kind of sponsorship from, from the company, actually. And the, the way the system works here is a bit strange. So you'd think if you set up a company that they would make it easy to get your work permit and all that, and it's not really the case. The fact that you're employed to work here is somehow, bureaucratically speaking, not entirely related to the fact that you're you know, an owner or investor in the company. So the company itself still has to go through all this long process of saying, yes, we want to employ this foreign person to come and work for us, even though on the documents of the company, obviously, there's there's my name there as a, as a shareholder of the company. But anyway, it gets, it gets done eventually. And so the company has to decide, yes, we want to sponsor this person who's part owner of us to, to work here uh, for us. But then once you, once you get that done, you get a work permit and what's called a KITAS. It's a, it's a work and stay permit. It's something like a permanent residency, I guess you'd say. Right. And it's, it's valid for a year. And at the end of every year, you just need to go to the, the immigration office here and extend it. They retake your picture and photo prints and a new little certificate and everything else. And then you just extend it at the end of every year. 
But you have a high likelihood of getting the extension, or do you have to worry much about, uh, you know, the guy at the counter is probably not in a good mood today, maybe my chances are low, or anything like that? No, 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 not like that. Once you have it, the extension's pretty much, you know, automatic. Um, the the place where it's a little bit difficult to get is the very first time you, you get the the work visa, you have, the company has to, and, you know, everybody uses agents. There's agents here that do this kind of stuff. And so the company, and usually through the agent, has to submit to the immigration office, the head office in Jakarta, saying, this person wants to do this job in this company, and they have this skill set. And then the big kind of ministry or whatever in Jakarta says, yep, that's okay. And as soon as you get the letter from them, then the processing part here is just just bureaucracy, really. But once you have that first letter saying, yep, this company can employ a foreigner to work in this position, then it's fine after that. So there's a couple of different options, too, for visas here. So after you've worked here for a while in certain positions, you can go from a kind of one-year extendable visa to a five-year extendable visa. But at the end of the day, I kind of look through it. They're pretty much the same thing. It's just you don't have to extend the first one every year. So you just get another five one, a five-year one. Uh, and that's kind of the path that people take if they want to eventually become Indonesian citizens. But if you're not kind of planning to go that route, then there's not that much benefit to it. Right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I appreciate the overview on the visa process. It, it's always a bit difficult to navigate for first timers, for sure. Yeah, definitely is. And, and here, too. But, um, you know, there's a lot of visa agents. So people that come and want to work here, I think just talk to some foreigners that are already working here and they can probably put you in touch with some of the, the more reputable agents. It's also not particularly cheap to have a, a work visa here. They make it a little bit expensive. So they have one portion of the, the cost for the work visa where they say, right, uh, you need to set aside $100 a month for the period of the one year. And that goes into a special fund to train Indonesians who are ideally being displaced by having a foreign worker here, uh, which is, that's all right. I mean, it's, if it, it's actually being used for that, you know, that's a good, it's a good thing. And it's supposed to be paid by the company. So if you have a, you know, company that's legitimately, legitimately is interested in hiring you, I suppose they kind of pay that cost. But so that's 1200 a month. And then with all the other processing fees and this and that, this and that, probably costs around fifteen to eighteen hundred dollars a year to have a work visa here. So it's it's not a cheap thing, but you know if, if you want to do it and you have a decent job then it's that's worth doing because you you can't man, you can, but you really shouldn't try to to work here without kind of proper work visas and that. A lot of people have tried it and it just seems like, you know, you hear these horror stories, people just getting burned all the time. So if you want to work, you know, here, at least in Indonesia, I'm sure every country is different. But if you want to work here, you should, you know, try to follow the follow the laws that they have. Right. And how did you actually find those first positions? Was it through some of the network that you had built up over your time living here that, you know, gave you those uh, travel writer and lecturer opportunities? Or did you actually apply for those directly? No, those were all just just found through a network of, of people that I'd known you know from from living here um the the lecture one was actually with one of the guys that was uh teaching the program that i was at kind of the the year previously and we became friends and you know talked about stuff and he said you know i really think you could you could teach this course for six months and i said yeah man let's do it 
um, writing stuff. It's, it's also just friends of friends and saying, hey, I'm, I'm interested in this. And they said, hey, you should go talk to my friend you know, here or her. And then just finding it that way. I don't think I've ever... I don't think I've ever applied for an actual job since I've been in Indonesia. I mean, where you know, a, a job where you just see an advertisement, you put your CV together, and you submit it. Everything I've I've done has either been, you know, network of friends like that, or basically identifying a problem, saying, right, how can I put a team together to solve this? And if it becomes big enough, let's make a company to support it taking that line of thinking how did you apply that and building your first company uh yeah that's interesting so the maritime thing it's not my background at all right i'm not a, a sailor i'm not a seafarer uh, but when i jumped from the university side so i was working with uh, my friend at the university in java and i kind of got introduced to some people in the universities in um, bali here so i had that kind of like network within the universities i started talking with them about actual like job training programs for their students in the universities and if we could put some programs like that together to actually help indonesian university students uh get you know, better skills training or or even like on the job trainings um you know abroad in the united states so it's kind of going the other way right uh and through that i met you know a, a friend of a friend a uh, guy here in bali uh, who's, you know, became my, my first partner and his position at the time, he was also involved in the Indonesian Seafarers Union. So we were working together on the student project uh, and that went pretty well. We, we organized kind of training programs for students that lasted for probably seven or eight years until actually until the, the visa problems in the United States and the like mm. bureaucratic stuff from the United States side became too difficult. Then we just kind of canned it. We said, no, it's not worth doing anymore. But along the way, I'd been working with him doing various, you know, maritime training projects. So I was still in that kind of realm of like training and, you know, seminars and organizing, you know, workshops and stuff for, for the seafarers. And I just got involved with more and more projects with the, the Seafarers Union and met people that, that he worked with in the kind of global trade union kind of network with the International Transport Workers Federation. They're a big kind of global uh, transport workers you know, group uh, and just met different people that said, hey, can you help us out with this project? You're down here, you're in Indonesia, you speak the language. I said, yeah, man, take, take this. So I just did a couple different projects, smaller things, and then worked with him to help try to develop some kind of social welfare institutions here in Bali. So, you know, Seafarer Center for the people while they were home. You know, we set up a little bar and restaurant for the members. We set up a credit union uh, for the membership and their family. Just started working in that space, you know, with those seafarers. So from that community, a seafarers union, we probably have about 12, 10 to 12,000 members here in Bali on the island here. And so just setting up programs, you know, to service them and, and their families and just working in that space with the with the trade unions and with those people. Uh, they're just all hardworking people, nice people, genuine people. Uh, most of them, I think, were working abroad on the foreign ships, you know, either fishing ships or cruise ships or, or cargo ships. And so I just got more and more involved with that industry, the maritime industry. It was just it was interesting. It was new to me. Uh, and they had problems that needed solved, and I found that to be kind of like you know little mini 
puzzles that I could try to attack and say, right, how can we set up a financial institution for these guys and their memberships and looking into the, the credit union process, putting a team together and saying, right, we can do this. It's difficult, but we can make it happen. Yeah, that's really incredible. And it speaks a lot to finding that opportunity, as you mentioned, and definitely having those, you know, your ear to the ground and being able to see what's going on around you, seeing those opportunities where they lie, and then figuring out how to attack them. In terms of putting that team together, what was that initial group like um, outside of, was it just you and uh, the other person that you mentioned, or did you actually put together a larger group going into the first opportunity? So my, yeah, my main team from the beginning was, was me and my partner, Booty, the guy that I mentioned, uh, and then another friend uh, from, from, from Malang, from the first city I was in, in the other island. And we, the three of us were kind of like the, the master kind of brains of the entire operation. So we thought about, you know, how can we kind of first put the student program together and second, how can we develop it into something outside of just, you know, students that we can apply first off to the seafarers and eventually maybe even to, to, to other groups or to the general public. So with my partner, Booty, the local, local guy here, you know, he's a local guy, Balinese guy, just super friendly. We, we just hit it off. We became good friends from the very beginning. Uh, and he'd also worked abroad, right? So he worked on a cruise ship for, I don't know, eight or 10 years or something. So his thinking was also a little bit kind of westernized. And that kind of helped, I think, at least helped me from the beginning. But we would just sit. It's a, there's a local kind of bakery coffee shop, not, not too far from here, actually, down the street. And we used to meet there, you know, a couple times a week for coffee and just sit upstairs and talk about, you know, how can we do this? You know, what can we do for these, you know, seafarers? These cruise ship guys need a a seminar that they can, you know, develop collective bargaining, you know, negotiation skills or whatever it is. And we just sit there. We call that our first office, this coffee shop. And we sat up there and we made little scribbles and scribbles on, you know, scrap paper. And eventually we said, right, well, we actually, we were getting enough projects going that we actually need to come up with a company. So we created that first company. It was a, it was a consulting company, which is kind of an umbrella. It covered us to do kind of everything we needed to do. And then, you know, I could get my work visa, we could be covered, you know, legally, all the taxes and stuff was sorted out. And we just grew from there. And I still, he's, I've partnered with him on multiple projects and we're still, you know, partners to this day uh, and just worked out, worked out well. We get on really well together. We bring kind of different skills to kind of what we do kind of in each in each project if that makes sense so we really complement each other in that way so i was i was lucky to find him or or him to find me i don't know uh but but we we really work work well together and we've put a lot of successful projects together including the clinic that that we're running now i mean that's still a another thing where him and i said right here's here's an opportunity here's this group of of seafarers that don't have anybody giving them dedicated medical services uh, you know, setting up a medical center was outside of the kind of cost realm, I suppose, of the of the local union. So it has to be something private. We can put a kind of group together and, you know, make something that can kind of fill that spot in the market. And we did. You know, we brought a couple other people in. So and we've done that in a couple different projects between him and me. Uh, and then there's another guy. So the three of us, we just kind of look at each project a little bit differently and then saying through his network and sometimes through through my network, who can we pull in to have as a part of this project? And it's, yeah, 
hasn't always worked out, but for the most part, it works out pretty good. In terms of, you know, actually setting up that initial corporation, I guess it was a consulting corporation, as you mentioned, how long did that take and what was required? Were you directing that process or did you rely on uh, Booty, your business partner, to help you along with it? So uh, for sure, I relied on him, you know, a lot on that type of stuff. So he still does a lot of the, you know, work with governments and this and that kind of more of the, yeah, technical paperwork kind of stuff just because he knows enough people to get that done relatively easy and, and quickly. Uh, but setting up a company, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do here. It's just a lot of hurdles and hoops to jump through, and it probably took maybe three to four months, just kind of start to finish. But you can get to a point where you, we start it, right? You go to the, the notarial office, you register it with the, with the lawyer, and you kind of start going through the steps of getting the license from this office and this office and this office and this office and you get halfway through the process and then somebody says all right now you're you're kind of on the way there so you can start operating now as a legal company and then over the next couple months you kind of finish up but but yeah it takes probably took three or four months and then by the time that was finished then it took another couple months before I kind of got my my work permit work visa so it's not a it's not a quick thing. That's one thing that Indonesia is trying to improve on, I think, because they've made a lot of changes in the, the, the way businesses operate here. The government's trying, at least from the top down in Jakarta and the capital, they're trying to improve kind of business efficiency, you know, how easy it is to set up companies, making, you know, the government offices into like a one-stop center where you can get all of your different licenses and permits in one place. But it's a slow process. It's not easy. So I think actually in the... 15 years since we set up that one, it probably takes longer now to set up a company. I'd say maybe between four and six months. Um, so it's definitely not an easy thing to do. And that there's also multiple types of companies, right? So there's a fully foreign-owned company. There's a local company where you can get you know, agreement with the local partner where you're kind of attached to the company. Um, so you, you need to do a bit of research before you, you set that up. And then there's certain industries as well where the government says, right, we don't allow foreign investment in this industry, but we do allow foreign investment in this industry. And, and even that changes every couple of years. The government will amend their list, and suddenly this one that used to be off limits is now open for, for foreign investment. So you, you kind of have to be on the ball and you know, come down and really look and see what's, what's going on. And even I think the information on the Internet, if you look, look on the internet it's hard to find kind of accurate up-to-date information you really need to come talk to somebody here right i mean have you seen it go the other way where somebody was doing a business in a industry a field that was completely okay with the government and then in short order the government changed its mind on that position and they had to abandon the business or something like that uh not so much in that sense i think if they were in like when they make these changes if you're if you're already in they will kind of allow you to keep going. They just don't want to maybe any new investment in a certain field. Uh, but what I've seen more people having problems with is coming in saying, right, I want to set up a company and then branching off and trying to do something a little bit outside of what the original intent of the company was. And, you know, for example, they come in and set up a company doing, you know, garment industry, you know, making clothes, selling clothes, whatever. 
and then they kind of want to branch out into kind of importing goods and then they're doing a little bit of like you know setting up events and property management and then it's like now you're outside of the scope you set for yourself just shut it all down so there's been a lot of problems uh, not problems but cases like that that i've seen and that's really one of the reasons why when we made the first company uh we did just set it up to be almost as kind of generic as possible just overall you know consultants and we can really kind of do a lot of stuff under that so the more you kind of pin yourself down unless you're absolutely going to be working in that field if you have a specific product you're trying to launch fine then just pin it to that but if you can keep it as broad as possible you have a lot more kind of room to develop a little bit down the road yeah that makes sense were there any particular indonesian rules and regulations that caught you by surprise as a new business owner <laughs> yeah yeah i've been caught by a lot of things over the years um the the funniest things are the ones that are not really actual rules and they're not really anywhere in the books but there's some government officer somewhere that says, well, we kind of have to follow this path. And uh, so it's all little kind of bureaucratic hurdles that you kind of have to get used to and and kind of learn to, to manage. And in that sense, you just have to have a, a pretty good local partner that has a sense of how to kind of deal with those things. Right. And also just be patient. I mean, you can kind of get through a lot of stuff if you're pretty patient and just kind of start talking. You can find solutions. Um, obviously, there's issues in this country with kind of, you know, corruption and that kind of stuff. All the bureaucracy and corruption, all that stuff kind of works together. And the government's made pretty good efforts, actually, to try to try to attack that, to try to kind of push it back or, or get rid of it. And they're ongoing. You know, it's not an easy problem to solve overnight, but. Basically, the desire for corruption that was here from, you know, years and years and years ago leads to an increased bureaucracy so that, you know, people can get lost in this kind of middle space where there's no real kind of way out. And those are the most frustrating things, I think. Uh, but, you know, other than that, I think it's, it's, it's not such a difficult place to work once you're inside and you kind of, you know, have an overview of what's going on. Being a foreigner in Bali, I mean, I suppose, as you mentioned, it's a more tourist-centric place. I know a lot of folks from Germany like to go there on vacation. You probably see more expats living there than you did uh, in the first place you lived. But how important is it to be able to speak Indonesian, to live there, and uh, particularly to be able to work there, perhaps start your own business? Sure, sure. Um, So, yeah, Bali, obviously, tourism is their number one industry on this island. And it's not it's not a big island. It's like I think maybe the size of you know the state of Delaware or something like that. Uh, and most of the development and everything is in the kind of southern part of the island. So I'm probably from where I am, I'm you know one or two hours away from pretty much everything you know on the island that I need to do in terms of uh, you know government stuff, offices, you know networks of people, you know all the main tourist areas. You know, places to hang out, restaurants, bars, clubs, all that kind of stuff. It's all in that southern part of the island. Uh, so that's, you know, it's one thing. It's a kind of small island. Uh, but it is tourist-centric. Uh, my field is not tourist-centric. I'm like one of the few people that are working here as an expat that's not either in, you know, teaching or or tourism. Um, so the tourist stuff, if you're doing something touristy, I think you can get by without having great Indonesian. Um, my stuff and the stuff that I do... It's really key. I think it's pretty important to 
you know, the things that I've been able to develop that, you know, obviously it expands the, the number of people that I can work with. Um, it's easier to kind of build up the network that way. So for me and for what I've done, I think it's been really, really key uh, to be able to, to speak fluently in Indonesian. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's definitely important for me. The other thing that's been important for me, I think, is, is I didn't really realize at the time, but looking back, it helps a lot, is the, the background that I had in anthropology, actually, from my university days, it's, it's really given me a lot of insight since I've been living here, you know, especially even in business or in you know, social occupations like welfare projects that we're setting up, is to be able to analyze you know, the, the target audience here and see what they want, to see what they value and be able to put something together from that sense of trying to understand, you know, their culture and their their you know, belief systems. It's been really kind of interesting for me to be able to use that because, you know, coming out of university, I'm like, wait, great, I graduated, you know, I studied anthropology. What am I ever going to do with it? But at the end of the day, it's really become a pretty useful tool. So, yeah, that's been, that's been helpful for me as well. But the other thing about speaking the local language is it obviously gives you kind of respect and kind of cred with the people here so and that's also a really key thing for working here is people like to uh feel like you know one they're being respected their culture is being respected and they respect you if you've made the effort to 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 do it to understand about their culture to understand their language stuff like that so it really helps helps you out people trust you more automatically if you can not only just speak to them in indonesian but you know, say the right, you know, culturally appropriate things. It's really important. And then you have a network of people that, that do trust you and you can kind of deal with them a lot, a lot more easily or they'll help you out if you need something down the road. So how have you seen Indonesia develop over the 18 or so years that you've been living and working there? And, uh, and what are opportunities do you see for entrepreneurs going forward, uh, particularly ones that are coming from abroad? So, yeah, Indonesia's developed, you know, a lot in the last... 17, 18 years. Um, the economy's grown. They're trying to stay really, really relevant in the kind of Southeast Asian market, and they are. I mean, it's a huge country. It's, um, I guess, the fourth largest kind of population in the world, and it's the biggest country in Southeast Asia. And then also looking forward, there's going to be, uh, it's kind of like a trade block, I guess they're going to they're trying to create basically it's a Southeast Asian kind of trade block trade network. Mm -hmm. uh, so they'll, they'll be more kind of, well, ideally they're still ironing things out, but it's the, the ASEAN block, the association Southeast Asian nations block where they're going to create a kind of not exactly a free trade zone, but a, uh, a zone within those nations where Indonesia is going to be the biggest country and the biggest player, but they'll also have to deal with, you know, labor and goods and things and coming in from other countries, Thailand, Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia. Uh, so that's also going to affect how business is going to go here. But they're trying to kind of raise each other, you know, up together. That's that's the ideal point. Uh, but Indonesia, I think it's, it's going to continue to be relevant. It's got a huge population. So there's needs for services are growing. Um, income's growing. Wages are going. I think the the minimum wages this year were about 9% higher than they were last year. So wages are going up pretty fast. And because of that, the demand for new services is also rising pretty good. So there's a lot of opportunity um, 
you know, for new businesses here. And, and the biggest opportunity, the biggest thing that I see actually is, is opportunities to improve businesses or improve facilities that are already here. So that's, I think, where people can come in and really find a way to make a quick impact without even, even without investing a whole lot of money. I mean, you're not talking about coming in and building a brand new factory, but identifying something that's happening here and saying, yeah, I can come in either with technology or with, ideas about logistics or whatever and make that work better make that more efficient make that more profitable i think that's a one area where somebody could come in with a background from you know united states or europe or wherever and make a very kind of quick impact and and do something that is going to help people here yeah that's excellent thank you for that what are your particular plans going forward do you intend to stay in bali for the foreseeable future and continue to build businesses there or do you think that you might try a new avenue, uh, maybe somewhere else around Southeast Asia, or, or potentially head back to the states in the future? No, I'm pretty I'm pretty tied into to Indonesia and to Bali now, so I'm here for the for the foreseeable future. You know, I don't really plan on going anywhere else, uh, but I still do projects kind of around in the region. And that's another thing that I would say if somebody wants to maybe come and and live. In Indonesia or work in Indonesia, uh, especially with the new kind of trade block coming up, is yeah understand Indonesia, but get to know a little bit about the rest of the region, about Southeast Asia, because um, I've done I've had projects in you know Timor Leste, uh, which is East Timor, you know, Thailand, Malaysia, where you know different groups from outside said right you're in Indonesia, but you know enough of the region that we want you to kind of handle this project, so you can you can essentially use Indonesia as a kind of springboard to be available for different you know, roles or different projects in the kind of in the entire region. So there's there's more opportunities there for that. Uh, but I yeah, I'm, I'm definitely here. Um, we're still developing the, the, the medical center here with kind of plans to expand that. Um, I'm starting this month um, trying to start. Uh, there's a new five year national trade union social welfare system. Uh, that got approved at the Indonesian Seafarers Union Congress last month. And they want to kind of have me try to make a, a push to develop that. So that's a kind of five-year <laughs> program uh, that will kind of take me a, around a lot more places in Indonesia. But it, it's fun. It's a new challenge. And I can kind of help incorporate medical developments alongside that. So I think they'll probably both help each other. So that'll be kind of fun. But but I'm I'm definitely here for the for the long term. Excellent. And in terms of folks that are interested in also living in Indonesia, you've provided a lot of wonderful information, but do you have any particular resources or, or other pieces of advice that you would give to them as they consider making that their new destination? Uh, I think the first thing would be just come here and just try to talk to people. I mean, if it's if it sounds like something you could be interested in, come and just visit and travel around. It's pretty cheap still, even, even now. So you could travel around for a month or two quite cheaply and just talk with people, see if it's a place that you would like to, to live and if the people, the type of people you can work with and if the ideas you have uh, you know, resonate here. There's a lot of Facebook groups and I think there's a couple of expat websites and stuff that you can you can read, but I wouldn't, they, they'd be maybe okay as kind of resources if you're just looking for information, but I wouldn't worry too much about the kind of negative side because a lot of people use those to kind of tell their horror stories or their sob stories of you know the business they set up but it it went wrong and everything kind of fell fell apart um 
but I saw, I'd take all those also with a grain of salt because I've been around here long enough to, to see businesses that have fallen apart and, you know, nine times out of ten or probably more, it's because people came and tried to take shortcuts or, you know, I didn't want to register this so I just put it in someone else's name or right. I didn't want to get a proper visa or work permit or whatever and then, you know, everything went terrible and people do stuff that they wouldn't do in their own home country sometimes i just kind of shake my head at it uh so definitely i would avoid shortcuts and stuff like that but the the best thing to do is just come here travel around a bit have a look you know try to get a feel for the place um and then once you are here just make connections with with you know local local people and eventually you need a little bit of a network uh it's it's almost impossible i think to start a business entirely on your own you do need to have a local partner or two or at least a local network of people that you can kind of depend on um and so you need to be here for a certain amount of time before you can develop that you know you find some people that you can work with and you know people you can trust how is the expat community in bali by the way i mean do you find it to be quite welcoming you know a diverse group of people you know how would you characterize it yeah, it's it is pretty diverse actually. It's a different groups, and they kind of almost kind of click off into their own kind of nationalities. There's a kind of Dutch expat group. There's a kind of Australian expat group. Um, I think there's the kind of in Ubud, which is the kind of trendy kind of hippie area. There's like the yoga new new age type kind of expat group. Um, but because it's a tourist island, there's a lot of you know people that come over and just hang out here, or even like retire here. So I'd say that kind of the expat group is probably a bit older than it, it would be in other places. Um, or you have the expat group of people that are working in hotels that are chefs or GMs or, you know, in charge of, you know, tourism developments and stuff. So when I started, like I said, when I was first in, in Malang, I was pretty much exclusively hanging out with local people. I don't think I had hardly any expat friends. When I moved to Bali... I started to get a few more. It kind of became nah, not quite 50-50. It was probably more Indonesians than locals. But as I lived here long enough and then met other expats, people that I could actually kind of connect with that were doing interesting stuff here, I've kind of probably balanced out. So I think at the moment I'm like uh, half and half. It's the people I hang out with on a weekly basis are are both kind of expat and local. And so there is there is a group of interesting expats here. And you just try to get into some different activities. So, like, my Dutch friend and I, we set up a football team about eight years ago. And through that football team, soccer team, U.S. soccer team. Um, and so by setting that team up, um, you know, we tried bringing in people that are interested in, you know, playing soccer every week and then going out and having a few beers after. It's really kind of a social thing. Uh, but we set it up in such a way that it, it was uh, – something that expats here could join, but also something that locals that were really passionate about football could join as well. So we set up to be specifically to be 50-50 and we were going to play. There's another team that was here at the time that was an expat only team, a little bit kind of snooty, they're an English team. <laughs> and so we purposely set up a team so that we could kind of challenge them. And in the end, they folded before we ever ever had our challenge match. But but we're still here. But but through that, just through you know having that team and knowing people talking to each other and saying, oh, this is a guy that has this team that's half Indonesian and half, you know, foreigners, then you generally kind of run into people that are interested in in people that are you know doing that. 
How can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? If people want to get a hold of me, they can send me an email at uh, brant, B-R-A-N-T, at baliseafarers.org. Um, if they have any questions about Indonesia, yeah, send me an email. I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to chat with anybody. Thanks to Brant for sharing his story with us. You can find the full transcript for this episode at expatempire.com. If you are interested in sharing your story on Expat Empire, please consider submitting a user post about your expat experiences on expatempire.com or email us at podcast at expatempire.com and let us know more about your international background. Music on this episode was produced by Eli Hermit. Please check him out on Bandcamp and Spotify. Keep up to date on new Expat Empire podcast episodes by pressing the subscribe button in the podcasting app of your choice. You can also visit expatempire.com and sign up for the newsletter to get notified about new podcast episodes and receive a ton of free expat and travel-related content. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, at Expat Empire, so be sure to follow us there. Last, but certainly not least, we would appreciate a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps new listeners to find us and lets us know that we are putting out content that you appreciate. Check back for our next episode in two weeks. See you then.